Totally football show. Boom. Reputations crumble and fans are but a trifle. It's the Great British Baku off. Azerbaijan and Azerbaijan's in Wednesday's Chelsea triumph. Was decision to hold final in City far-sighted, or was that just any fans trying to see the action? Meanwhile, Champions League as Liverpool and Spurs prepare for their clash yonder at the Wonder. We ponder what awaits now that the other team has a keeper named Loris. Plus, European end-of-season news, your questions and a big summer of sport preview in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Happy birthday, Paul Heron. And we've got a hair on, which is rare for me, actually. It's Raphael Honigstein. Hello. Hi, Rafa. Good to see you back. Uh, you've just returned from hanging out in Marbella with Jurgen Klopp. Well, you know. Damn. You have to go where the, where the work leads you. <laughs> Absolutely. And luckily today, that's right here. <laughs> right here between your ears, listener. Michael Cox is also here, currently leading the fight against Harry's fourth autobiography with... Zonal marking, which has come out today, literally today. It is in the shops today. Actually, it was in some of the shops yesterday, but yeah. it's in the shops either way. And fresh back from Italia, Matt Davis-Adams. See? <laughs> <laughs> Matt, we may, may I just say, uh, what a fantastic job, a little bit too fantastic a job you did of helming the ship totally, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago when I was in Bratislava. Thanks, that's very kind. It's a bit of a hospital pass, but uh, Michael and, and the gang managed to, to metaphorically hold my hand. In what way is it a hospital pass? Well, how are you going to improve on perfection, James? Oh, yeah. I see. Mm. Crikey. Good. Anyway, now also, uh, James Horcastle will be along a bit later, uh, in about 40 minutes, if you want to skip ahead, listener. <laughs> Excellent. Who saw the Europa League final on Wednesday night? Yes. Yes. If that was, it was kind of weird, wasn't it, Rafa? It was as weird as it was to be expected, I think. A strange place where nobody wanted to be, a final where only really one team had something to play for, although the team who had less to play for in the end kind of was better at it and uh, seemed to be more determined and more mentally adjusted to deal with the occasion. And, yeah, I think... As much as it was fun watching the the high angle and seeing the game from sort of a tactical perspective, the cynic in me can't help but wonder whether that was specifically done so that the empty seats would not be in shot because there was there were many many of them, and uh, it's a shame because in the end it actually after a poor first half, it turned into a really entertaining game which could have made for a really memorable occasion, in a more hospitable environment. Absolutely. A 4-1 victory in the end for Chelsea. It was billed throughout the game by the commentators in the UK at least as being potentially decisive for Chelsea's plans in all sorts of ways. Matt, was it, do you think? Is it? Um, I mean, it's such a difficult game to unpack an occasion. I think obviously it was much more decisive for Arsenal, I would I would suggest, because of the budgetary implications of not being in the Champions League next year. I'm not sure it was decisive in any meaningful way for Chelsea really because the, the argument that you might have made was it would impact Maurizio Sarri's future but I think probably he's the one who's making the decision on that rather than Chelsea so maybe not we found out obviously afterwards that it, it was Edin Hazard's last game that wasn't particular news so I'm not sure it really did have a massive impact on Chelsea in the way that it did on Arsenal but but what it has done is turned it a decent season for Chelsea and for Maurizio Sarri into a brilliant one. You know, he's, he's finished third in a league where the top two teams were miles above everybody else, uh, lost the League Cup final on penalties and 
obviously he said something at half-time that had an effect because the first half of the game was pretty 50-50, pretty forgettable and we're thinking, well, we're probably going to go all the way here, extra time, maybe even penalties and Chelsea just come out at the start of the second half and, and continue this remarkable record that they've got, which I find being inside the club to an extent quite amusing now that, it, that there's a kind of defiance about Chelsea in the face of logic, which infuriates people that, you know, uh, or oh, they never replaced Michael Emanalo. Their turnover of managers is ridiculous. They've got all these players out on loan. And yeah, but this is my eighth season covering them. And they won the Premier League twice, the Champions League, the Europa League twice, two FA Cups and the League Cup. And nobody else can get anywhere near that. So something about the system clearly works as backward as it would appear to be on the face of it. Very interesting. First half was quite miserable, I found. Second half, as many people pointed out, once we got into Thursday, came alive with five goals, three of them very tasty. Yeah. Uh, what happened? Why did Chelsea run away with it, Michael? Well, I thought, despite the fact that the two halves were very different, all the action was happening down the same side, really. I thought Maitland-Niles was very good going forward in the first half, maybe Arsenal's main threat. But Chelsea found space either in behind him or, or when Arsenal retreated into their back five, Emerson found space to cross the ball. And, and really the damage came from that flank, whether it was Emerson dribbling forward, Hazard getting space. And, uh, you know, the third goal was a combination of the two where Emerson got the ball and, and then put it onto Giroud and Maitland-Niles was recovering his position to bring him down. So I think that was the problem position for Arsenal going into the game. Hazard against Maitland-Niles was, was always likely to be a worry. And, and in the end, that's pretty much what decided the game. What a lovely header, though. From Giroud? Mm. Yeah, he's... I mean, it was... I've got to say, there's, I've said this before, there's there's few players I enjoy watching as much as Giroud because he's he's so good at some things and so not good enough in, in other areas. So we saw in the first half where there was, he had a decent chance and he just... He didn't quite have the speed. He didn't catch the ball right. And you think, that's kind of classic Giroud. And then it's classic Giroud to get a near-post header. You know, it was a brilliant... Uh, yeah, a brilliant technique with his header. And I just quite like the fact there was a couple of moments where Chelsea just crossed the ball into Giroud and it was at an awkward angle. And he kind of just attempted any old kind of flick. Just It was almost like he was, I'm just Giroud. If I tried this, something might happen. And it didn't, but he's just a, I find him a really entertaining player to watch. Pedro, who made it 2-0, and then Hazard 3-0 from the penalty spot. And then Iwobi breathed some life into the kind of moribund gunner's and then that was that lovely uh, one-two between Giroud and the departing Hazard uh, for the fourth Chelsea goal. Why did Arsenal fail to make any impact at all in the second half? Uh, here's Aklav Hanif saying, uh, typically after an Arsenal defeat, all attention turned to Ozil. I would love Honigstein to provide a definitive hot take, Rafa, on why this is lazy scapegoating. Is it lazy scapegoating, Rafa? Yeah, something like 40 touches, was he, it? He didn't have a good game. And um, the fact that, you know, Arsenal were set up with him as the pivotal point behind two strikers meant that he had to have a real influence, um, a telling touch to either play in players or get involved himself in the box. And it just never happened for him. Um, there was some good stuff happening for Arsenal it was mostly through the flanks when they bypassed sort of the centre altogether Kolasinac had a had a great chance to create a chance in the first half um, when Pedro really didn't track back very effectively they were a little bit exposed on that side a couple of times and it didn't work out and Ozil as often happens wasn't able to really wrest control of the game back to Arsenal's favour and they disintegrated now 
there are problems all over this Arsenal team. Um, he certainly didn't didn't help. But, you know, you look at the way the goals were conceded and there were some clear, almost kind of systemic problems. Uh, recovering positions, not getting back into the right areas when they lose possession. He, you could say that the problems start with him, but they certainly didn't didn't end with him. And it does, of course, create an issue because... As much as you want to defend them and say, you know, he still helps Arsenal win a lot of the smaller games that they have to win to even get into a position where they can achieve their their big aims as far as um, fourth place and uh, and getting deep into uh, cup competitions is concerned. Playing him then almost sacrifices something else and the strength of Arsenal throughout midfield is not such that you can basically sacrifice one position against better opposition when it comes to having a system to defend or having the organization and the and the the physical prowess as well to deal with that kind of threat so that debate will continue and um, of course it's exacerbated by the fact that he's also the best earner which does have a negative knock-on effect in the dressing room I'm I'm pretty sure I thought a, a key part of how the game panned out was how both teams dealt with the, the absentees that they had. Obviously, Ramsey would have started probably ahead of Ozil had he been available, Mkhitaryan, and for different reasons couldn't play. Chelsea without Tony Rudiger, who surely would have started. And hudson Odoi and Loftus-Cheeky both would have featured and have both been really crucial players in the knockout stages of the Europa League. Um, but obviously massive benefit that they were able to get N'Golo Kante to play 90 mm. minutes somehow. Um, Half which was of N'Golo Kante, I'd say. Which is still like one other player rather than the two that he normally is. So he, he managed to get through it somehow. But yeah, he, maybe Chelsea have got a stronger squad. They've also got Rob Green, as we discovered at the end. I'd completely forgotten about that. And anybody uh, mocking him, which I do get, is fibbing if they say they wouldn't do exactly the same thing if they were in that position. I think most people were happy for him, and I don't know if that's in some way hypocrisy after the opprobrium which heaped on uh, certain other Chelsea players who turned up in full kit for trophy celebrations. Yeah, I mean, you have to be in full kit, don't you? You for want that to be the way. Um, all oh. the all the young players who were on the bench, George McEachern, Colin Gallagher. He wasn't Gallagher, even on the bench, though, kit. I think. Um, no, nor was Tony Rudiger, and he's on right. crutches, and he had his Rudiger number two shirt on. Oh, did he? Okay. Um, but Rob Green is, you know, it's is obviously not an important position in the squad, but it's one of those Clive Woodward always used to say, didn't he, about good tourists, and and you know, it's important that you've got the right attitude when you're in that position. I spoke to him after he made his only Chelsea appearance as a sub in a pre-season game against Leon. And um, in our interview, he freely admitted this will be, unless something goes wrong, the only time I play in a Chelsea shirt. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to help out with the training and I'm here to hopefully learn off this manager who's supposed to be, supposedly got some really interesting ideas that I might be able to take into my coaching career. OK, so Rob's looking to uh, oh, mm. continue with presence yeah. on, the, on the bench. Basically. Just quickly on that note, uh, really quick. Um, someone told me the other day the chance of a third goalkeeper playing uh, in a top league is sort of 0.03% or something. It's so low. Really? That, yeah, that you might as well. Why is it so low? I, I, I'm sure there have been times when a, a, a keeper is injured and a second keeper gets injured. and then... Yeah, but over the course of thousands and thousands of games, it probably only low? happens right, three okay. or four times. Just on that kind of note for Arsenal's, uh, from Arsenal's perspective, I enjoyed, you know, every time you see runners-up going up to get their medals, they immediately take it off because they don't, you know, don't feel like winners. 
the one exception for Arsenal was Carl Jenkinson, who just looked proud as punch to, to get his hands on a medal. I thought that was quite sweet. Actually, Sarri as well, when he got his medal, looked uh, yeah, he did, quite he? emotional. I thought that was nice. Well, he, was, he, yeah. he was thinking about the happy days in Naples, wasn't he? we was, will <laughs> discover later on when uh, James Hallcastle turns up and decodes for us those uh, post-game messages, which I, I imagine, for all their public understanding, must have sat fairly un- unhappily with uh, in Chelsea's ears. I would imagine the same thing, but it... it I kind of am amused by by Sarri's just sort of brutal disregard for any kind of social graces, um, which came out again. And we on him getting his medals and, and the trophy and stuff. We need to sort out these trophy lifts because this was another really rubbish looking one of just as Piliqueta and um, and Cahill picking up the trophy. Um, I wanted to mention Pedro as well, his trophy collection. Obviously, he scored last night, scored in the Champions League final. Chelsea's won Premier League, Europa League, FA Cup, Barcelona, five La Ligas, three Champions Leagues, three Super Cups, two Club World Cups, three Copa del Reyes, and the World Cup and the Euros with Spain. Wow. And he's the only player, I think, to have anything like that collection. Yeah. It's amazing. Is he any good? (laughs) Pedro, yeah, I really like Pedro. Because he's one of those players who's there at Chelsea, but nobody really... And I, I feel, and to my mind, this seems very unfair that Williams sometimes gets lumped into the same bracket. Mm. But potentially a star somewhere else, but just kind of one of the guys who, who's not Hazard there. Yeah, but I think he's kind of almost accepted that role in his career. At Barcelona, he was always making the kind of decoy runs and always getting the best out of Messi. And I think he's the kind of player, if you put him in a mid-table side, he, he might not suit being the superstar, mm. but he's great to have as your kind of third attacker who uh, yeah, does some of the dirty work and pops up with the goals. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. As you mentioned, Matt, the aftermath of this game is that Arsenal miss out on a Champions League place. The aftermath for Chelsea is that they lose Eden Hazard. Who wakes up worse off on Thursday morning? Arsenal, certainly, I think, because uh, obviously Chelsea got this transfer ban in place, but they've still got Pulisic and Hudson-Odoi, depending on how well he recovers from his injury. Uh, You can't replace Hazard, obviously, but they've done well to hang on to him to the age of 28 after seven seasons of of great service, and I think they were aware that that he was going to go for a long time. Um, The difference is even... With Chelsea, with a with a transfer ban, when they come off that ban, they're they're a Champions League club, and that you know they will likely be a top four club again next season. Uh, so they will be able to attract players on that basis. And for all the talk that Roman Abramovich is losing interest, it's only last summer that he paid a world record fee for a goalkeeper. So they are still prepared to spend the money. Whereas Arsenal, we know that's not really the case. There is still a big question mark though over what happens after Sari if he does indeed go. Um, it's not going to be easy, I think, to attract a coach to a team that can't sign anyone and a coach who knows that um, this is a volatile club to to work for. And, of course, Chelsea, you know, in the wider sense, still have as much as I think it was, you're right, uh, it was interesting to see Abramovich beaming and smiling and Marina Gronovskaya on the touchline clearly happy. There are still, I think, some structural problems for Chelsea that need to be addressed. They still have the smaller stadiums of the top teams uh, with no realistic um, prospect of um, extending that or rebuilding that at the moment. And they have an owner who can't go or doesn't want to go to see his games because he's effectively banned from the UK. So there are, it's not, it's not that rosy. There are some issues. But of course, in a sporting sense, the team seems to be much more settled and in a happy place than Arsenal. Is there a danger for Arsenal with certain teams vying to break into the top six that they could be heading towards the exit of that group? I 
don't think so, personally. No, Rafa I, does. You're nodding, Rafa. Well, they've been out of the top four now for four year, for three years. Sorry, top six would mean that either Everton or West Ham or or maybe Wolves will will overtake them. That's probably difficult. But then top six is not really the ambition because fifth or sixth doesn't really do anything for you. You have to be top four, and that's the big danger. I think that they will be left behind with a manager who for all his qualities doesn't struck me as 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 an elite manager necessarily the kind of guy that can really transform a team that is a little bit low on on intrinsic quality and an ownership model that as we know has relies on the club sustaining itself and not really pumping any money into it so it looks as if some very lean times are ahead certainly in terms of investment possibilities there is another question that I still want to raise, if that's okay. And it's just to go back on this whole venue decision. I mean, this has been talked about a lot in the build-up to the game, yeah. but it certainly hasn't gone away with the match's completion. Is it fair to call this UEFA's Qatar World Cup? Do you think there's any kind of sense that the organising body has recognised that they really well, did, to borrow uh, <clears throat> Daniel Story's expression, S the bed on this one? <laughs> well, I guess you have to think about what they care about UEFA and I'm not sure they care much about the experience of spectators, but they will care about the fact it looks so bad on TV. Terrible. So, I yeah, I, I think that has more impact than uh, the fact that, you know, Mkhitaryan couldn't get in or the fact that it just cost people thousands of pounds to get there or the fact that there weren't many travelling supporters from England. I, I think the TV spectacle is a, a big part of what they care about. Right. Uh, four matches of Euro 2020, the kind of travelling continental-wide show that is the next European Championship will be held in Baku, which is quite a worrying thought, no? given the amount of difficulty everybody had there. It is a it is a very bizarre situation, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, there were later ramifications about Mkhitaryan not being able to play. I mean, I mean, Rafa's better place to speak about this than me, but can Arsenal not have a case to say that UEFA have organised this final somewhere where we were denied to play one of our best players? We've lost the game we've lost out on lots of revenue is there any you know well the 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 sports minister or the responsible government member had said no we guarantee his safety it's his decision not to come and previously i think certain other i mean athletes from armenia representing armenia have come with a letter from from the 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 foreign office saying that they're okay and nobody can kill them which is you know nice um so i guess that would be the answer there that that it'd be very difficult to to prove case either way um but yeah it's a bit shambolic i mean as much as i sympathize with uefa wanting to spread finals around and wanting to give it to smaller nations etc i think the logistics and the idea that um the almost cynical idea that this is so far away no one's going to come so we don't have to give them the tickets anyway (laughs) um i mean it does have some logic to it but i think they will reconsider having uh received so much bad publicity yeah uh and i think they are quite co- uh, conscious of the fact that you know the europa league suffers from bad pr anyway so this wouldn't have helped this could have been a showcase final between two champions league type sides with real quality and real recognizable superstars etc and um they didn't really make the most of it because of the choice of the venue uh, well, we had to get a coach to Dover, ferry to Calais, train to Bilbao, and then we had to lift with a farmer to Madrid. How did you lot get here? Uh, we lost three group games, Laurenti threw the ball in the net and VAR. Oh, right. 
Yes, Liverpool and Spurs have somehow made it to the Champions League final. And to celebrate, Paddy Power are offering money back as a free bet if Mane scores in 90 minutes. Paddy Power, home of the money back special. Selected markets only applies to first bet on all losing goal scorer, correct score and waddles Paddy bets on the match. Match refund £10 as a free bet. Not available in shops. T's and C's apply. 18 plus begambleaware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. And he spotted that! Oh, the Corbin! They caught Barcelona napping! Brilliant thinking by Alexander-Arnold! Clinical finish from Divock Origi! Liverpool ahead! Liverpool 4, Barcelona 0, 4-3 on aggregate! And that was so cheeky and so effective! It's in! Lucas Moura with the hat-trick goal! Spurs are going to the Champions League final for the first time in their history! Liverpool and Spurs three weeks ago. These two teams were the intrepid heroes of those incredible come-from-behind semi-final wins. Saturday, they come face-to-face to decide which is the European champion and which is a team of bottlers who wasted a whole season and ended up empty-handed. It's exciting. <laughs> Rafa, you've just come back from Marbella. A Liverpool confident this time? You can only judge their you know, the gesture, the mood in the camp, etc. And it's a bit superficial, but they seem to be supremely relaxed. And uh, and confident. I mean, if beating four Barcelona four 0 at home doesn't give you with conf- doesn't instill you with confidence, then I guess nothing does. They don't have any obvious injury problems. I think everyone will be will recover in time, with the Firmino? exception of yeah, Firmino will be fit, with the exception of Navi Keita. Okay, yeah. But then he might not have started the game anyway. So uh, with the rest, with the at least on the eye, low intensity of their of their games uh, in in the Premier League. But have been, man- been able to manage games and manage wins. I think they arrived there physically, mentally stronger and with a deeper bench than they did a year ago against opposition that on paper is on a similar level, if not slightly inferior. So you have to feel, you have to feel confident. Okay. So uh, Liverpool were off in Marbella. Where did Spurs go, Matt? Nowhere. They they went nowhere. <laughs> yeah, and they kind of limped across the line in their in their in their end of season fixtures. There's question marks over several of their players. Although I think the Harrys are, are meant to be okay, good to go. Are they for this? Yeah, but this is this is the key question, isn't it, for Spurs? And I think Rafa's right in terms of the deeper bench. You think back to the final last year when when Salah got injured and Liverpool were looking at a bench of Adam Lallana and Dom Solanke, you know, to come on and replacement. And this year it's much different. Whereas for Spurs, um, they just haven't got the depth of squad. And the Kane thing. I've gone backward and forward on this all week thinking about it. My initial thought was he shouldn't start because you think back to Diego Costa in 2014 who did something similar and went off after, what, eight minutes? Um, But the argument that I've heard to counter that is if he does start, then you're just effectively making one substitution if he can't make his way through it. But if you bring him on and then he breaks down, you've wasted two. Um, So fascinating decision for, for Pochettino and on Winks as well because he could be a key man if he's anywhere near. What's the right answer about Harry Kane, Michael? No, I think he will start, and I think it's also worth considering that now you have a fourth substitution in extra time. That was really what cost Atletico in 2014. Mm. Um, so it's less of a risk from that perspective. Yeah, I think he will play. I think from the training ground footage, he looks like he's moving uh, without any issues, and I think he'll lead the line. And, and the, the decision really is who drops out. And I think it'll probably be Lucas Moura, mm. who, uh, of course, was the hat-trick hero in the semi-final. Yeah. 
You've been reviewing the semi-finals, haven't you? And I think yeah. the thing that struck you most is the fact that Leo Messi's not playing in the final. <laughs> uh, well, rewatch the news just in. Yeah, yeah. rewatch. No, but, but the, it was an interesting point because yeah. I think the assumption, the kind of conventional wisdom after certainly the second leg, was yeah. that he just gone missing in that game that he hadn't powered his team to what would have been an easy passage to the final but you saw something quite different yeah so when i watched the game first time around it was in a very noisy spanish bar where i couldn't really you know concentrate on what was happening but watching in depth yeah messi was incredible he created two one-on-one chances for alba and suarez and another pretty good chance for coutinho um and it was a strange game, actually, because there were periods where Barcelona looked all right. I thought Busquets played quite well as well. But, uh, yeah, Liverpool's dominance down the flanks was was just too much. And I think that could be too much for Tottenham. Okay. I, th- I think the area I'd be most concerned about as a Tottenham fan would be Kieran Trippier against Mane. Because Trippier has been responsible for a lot of concessions this season. Liverpool have beaten Spurs twice already this season. 2-1, I think, on both occasions. Yeah, really different games, though. The first 2-1 could have been about 3-0 and the second 2-1 could have been... One all. It was, uh, yeah, very different encounters. Okay. There's a big gap in experience, Champions League experience. Since 2001, no team has been to more European finals than Liverpool. It's amazing, isn't it, Rafa? Since 2001, not Real, not Barcelona, not Bayern Munich, have been to more European finals than Liverpool. Uh, this is their sixth. That's four times in the Champions League. Uh, whereas Spurs, all that they've got is a UEFA Cup in 84. Now, I know a lot of those players haven't been in all those things, but does it make a difference, all that big game final experience? I mean, 2001, 2005, maybe even 2016, I think, has very little relevance on this game. Okay. Um, Last year's game, I think, will have a relevance. I think it'll it'll weigh on on players' minds. I think the experience of losing was was very painful. They don't want that to, to happen again. They also felt that they never got in a position to do themselves justice because of the way how the game went with Salah and Karius and and Bale scoring a wonder goal, and uh, as you said, no, no one on the bench really. The question is only: Will Spurs somehow feel overawed by the occasion? And that's impossible to predict. I mean, it was interesting to listen to Pochettino at the press day this week, where he said they basically spent the last two weeks just on the mentality of the players making sure that they arrive in the right frame of mind. Because, of course, I think if you're Spurs, you find yourself in a Champions League final having not even probably thought about the possibility of that happening and maybe at the back of your mind also thinking, we don't know what happens with Pochettino, we don't know what happens with us, we might never make it again. And that can create an extra bit of trepidation and and a sort of a fear that you know we have to we have to take this chance because we might blow it. But then it's down to down to the coaching and down to how each player takes takes a chance. Um, so experience, in that sense, can come back in a li- can come in a little bit uh, between those two sides. But it's only going to be a small factor, I think. Do you think it's going to be a good game, Matt? Yeah, I do. Um, both the Premier League games are good between these two this season and I think it will probably be played like a, a Premier League game It's um, I think Spurs have got less to lose than Liverpool because obviously Liverpool have had this extraordinary season so, so what that means in the grand scheme of things we'll also, see Also there's the whole Klopp curse This is true, yeah, I was I was thinking that thinking back to um, to 2016, the Europa League final But Has he ever won a final, Rafa? He has won one final, yes Okay. Was that a Pokal? Yes, All Right. 5-2 
Um, but, you know, the evolution of both these teams throughout this Champions League run has been been pretty interesting. You think Liverpool lost all three of their away group games and Spurs only got one point from the first three, didn't they? So I was just mm. wondering psychologically if, if Spurs might think the way that they come back, came back in the semi, which was arguably more impressive slash unlikely than, than Liverpool. As a, as a club, they have, they have less to lose, you're right. But as players, I think they'll have more to lose because Liverpool will think, you know, we can do this over the next few years. We'll probably win big big trophies, big titles. We, at least we have a really good shot at it. Whereas with Spurs, you just don't know if they'll come this close again. I mean, again, Pochettino will, will work really hard in, to not um, have it framed this way. But I think it is only natural to think, you know, is this going to be our season and will we ever have a similar opportunity? Is that what they were saying around the pool in Marbella? If we blow this, we've always got next year. What what were, what were they saying? What was the, what did Jurgen say when you sat down and chatted to him? I can only I can only tell you that they seemed extremely at peace with themselves, thinking that they have done the work. They now arrive in the best possible shape to to do this, and uh, of course that sort of boundless self belief, that conviction that they that they can do it this year. Uh, the mentality is very, very strong. And the team just functions really well. I mean, you know, you lose one game in the league all season. Um, Klopp's never lost a, a two-legged tie with Liverpool full stop. There is grounds to be very optimistic. And uh, Klopp, when asked about this, um, this curse and all this kind of stuff, keeps coming up with the same line is that he feels that he's never had a better team in the final. So... You know, whatever happened before doesn't really affect Liverpool's chances on Saturday. Certainly, you know, what happened to him with, with, with Dortmund and, you know, uh, things like that. So, if you are Liverpool, I think you approach this final very much like Real Madrid would have approached the last few finals, just thinking, we are so good. If we just perform to our usual levels we will win this thing and I think that gives you tremendous belief lads it's Spurs that's effectively what Rafa's saying then no no it's not about Spurs because I, I think Spurs are an awkward and, and very dangerous opponent and it is it is not a foregone conclusion but Liverpool's self-belief I think is so strong could I just say a slightly different point but I remember being at Klopp's first ever Liverpool game which was away at Tottenham in nil, nil. 2015 and nil nil and I remember thinking at the time, despite the fact it wasn't a memorable game, it really did feel like a, a bit of a new era for English football with the intensity of the press. You know, it was a time when Tottenham hadn't developed so much their attacking game. Pochettino's first thing he introduced was the press. The same with Klopp. That was his first game and already they were really shutting down opponents like I hadn't seen before. And a lot of people have kind of referenced the last All-English final in, in 2008 between Chelsea and Manchester United and said sometimes games between teams from the same country are cagey but football's changed so much since then that mm. was a counter-attacking Manchester United side and a counter-attacking Chelsea side and these are two sides who push up the pitch they want high tempo games they want to press they want to impose themselves and I think it could be uh, you know to use a bit of a cliche I think it could be a good advert for English football which which 2008 I don't think was Nice Will it end with Maurizio Pochettino being buttonholed by Daryl Curry who's saying the fans want to know Maurizio what's your decision? <laughs> Possibly. Well, yeah, he has hinted at that, hasn't he? He said, if and, he, uh, didn't he say that if if he won the Champions League, he would leave? He so didn't great come out as categorically, but he said maybe it's time for um for a change. I mean, there's two ways of reading this. One is 
he is putting himself in the proverbial um, shop window, perhaps paving the way for, for an exit, paving a way for being available, maybe taking half a year out, then waiting until the big jobs become available. Namely, I think Man United must be at the back of his mind now that Real Madrid, at least for the time being, is, is no longer available. Maybe even Bayern as well. Um, at the same time, other people are reading it as um, some very elaborate ploy to blackmail Daniel Levy into spending more money. And there is, apparently there is money available. Um, I don't know where exactly it's coming from, um, having gone over budget about 500 million for their stadium, but the word is that they will invest. And Pochettino has said repeatedly throughout the season that he feels they need now to, to add because he's basically come to the end of of the line as far as improving or coaching this this group of players is concerned. So what better way of, of saying, uh, of using that moment of, of triumph to really put the uh, the fright up your, your boss a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Matt, do you want to throw in anything on the Champions League final on Saturday? Just really looking forward to it. I think, I think Liverpool will win just, and yeah, Pochettino, maybe he's thinking, I could replace Maurizio Sarri and, and then, you know, my family won't have to move. Brilliant. Oh. <laughs> All right, next up, those playoffs. Hey, listener, you might think The Economist only concerns itself with economics and finance. But you'd be wrong because it covers loads of topics across politics, business, science, technology, arts and the environment. There's even a bit of sport in there too. Uh, For example, this week I got my clever on finding out all about the comedian who's just become Prime Minister of Ukraine, which is really interesting. And also I went back into the archive to read up on the linguistic universe behind Game of Thrones. I know. The Economist is the smart guide to the forces changing your world. So if you're the sort of person who never stops asking questions, get your free copy now by texting the word football to 78070. That's football to 78070. Matt, you were all over it in the Totally Football League show. Just in case anyone out there hasn't listened to the Totally Football League show, can you just kind of sum it all up? It was very exciting, first of all, yes. Yeah, lots of late drama. It's um, the, the playoff games tend to be either dreadful or exciting. There's, there's not much um, not much wiggle room in between that. You think of the kind of late 90s championship playoff games that always seem to end 4-3 and were balmy. We didn't didn't quite get this time, but, but in the championship, uh, Aston Villa beat Derby 2-1. A bit more comfortable than, than that scoreline suggests. Uh, John McGinn uh, got Villa's second goal after Anwar El Ghazi had put them in front. Derby got one back late on. Uh, just just on the John McGinn thing, Andrew Lang was asking, uh, he seems to be credited as catalyst to promotion. Rival manager Chris Wilder says he's the best in the league. Just how good is he? Yeah, he's an excellent midfielder. Um, if you listen to the Totally Football League show, you'll know that Sam Parkin, uh, one of our regulars, played with McGinn in Scotland and he's always raving about him. He's scored some ridiculously outrageous goals uh, this season too. So yeah, he's a, he's a key cog in the wheel, but as ever with championship teams, roundabout playoff level, um, a lot of it is to do with the lone players that you get in and, and that's something that Villa are going to have to look at because they uh, they bought Tyrone Mings in, in January and he's been phenomenal for them. Axel Tuanzebe alongside him, Man United might think is an upgrade on Chris Smalling or Phil Jones. Uh, and then Tammy Abraham, who's their top goal scorer, uh, whether Chelsea are going to want him back or not remains to be seen. 
we ought to mention Dean Smith and Jack Grealish, the manager and the captain of Villa, both Villa fans. Uh, Dean Smith, very emotional in his pre-match um, press conference. His dad used to be a steward at Villa Park, unfortunately suffering from dementia. And Dean says he, he thinks that his dad can't really compute that he is the manager of Aston Villa. But he'd gone to see him on the Friday and said, next time I see you, will be a Premier League manager. And his dad had smiled at him, which um, obviously means a lot. Uh, Jack Grealish, as I say, Villa fan, captain of the team. You might remember him from last time they were in the Premier League and he was being pictured you know, on the floor of nightclubs, not in a great way. He's had a fantastic comeback this season. Um, he got punched in the back of the head by a Birmingham supporter uh, and reacted to that by scoring the winning goal in the game. He played this game in the most battered pair of football boots that you've ever seen, totally threadbare. I'm sure his boot sponsors were having kittens seeing it. But he said, oh yeah, just scored a few goals in them, so I've carried on wearing them, which nice. is, uh, is a nice thing. He also cut his face during the trophy lift because one of his teammates lifted it up and caught him above the ice. So that was quite funny. Derby, lots of questions to answer. Is Frank Lampard going to stay? Owner scaling back investment Again, three key players were all lone players, so potentially um, potentially tricky for them. So yeah, that was a championship. Uh, in League One, Charlton got the better of Sunderland. They went behind early to a ludicrous own goal. Right, and a curse. Yeah, the curse. Okay, so the curse is quite quite incredible. This is uh, Richard Foster, author of The Agony and the Ecstasy, a book about, about the playoffs. He's worked out that on the 14 occasions that teams who usually wear red and white striped shirts and black shorts have been in a playoff final, none of them have won. So that's Sunderland, Sheffield United, Brentford, Exeter City, Lincoln City, and Sunderland weren't even wearing... Red and white here, but they still lost Um, seven times. They've been at Wembley without winning, going back to the mid-70s. They'd lost the Checker Trade trophy final 56 days prior. Uh, But Lee Bowyer is the Charlton manager. Mm. He's out of contract. Charlton, obviously, terrible mess of a club. Um, Those of us who followed his playing career and his time off the field then uh, considered him to be quite an unpleasant man. But it turns out he's actually an excellent football manager because he's been working with one arm tied behind his back. He got them to third in the table and eventually got them promoted. Excellent. And the um, other one was Tranmere beating Newport. It's like the right was. arm that they've tied pants <laughs> So, uh, well, there you go. That's brilliant. More. Yes, there is more. but it, And it's all in the Totally Football League show, which is available right now. Phil Wheatley's got a question unconnected with all of that. Is this another false dawn for Newcastle United? Am I morally allowed to hope for dirty oil money to buy success a la City? Um, what's the latest on Newcastle's uh, <laughs> Fake shake. World? Um, there are there are some doubts whether he is really quite the real deal, whether the money is there. Um, he had been talking to Liverpool before um, and it didn't come to anything because when it came to showing the money, mm-hmm. um, there was not much to be shown. So mm. I think proceed with caution would be I the see. right advice. Uh, there's another question for you here, Rafa, from Ben Stokes, who says... Did Rafa find those photos in the end? Rafa, there's a lot of people asking about this. What photos are these? I, I'm into gardening these days, but... Um, Did you inadvertently tweet something? <laughs> well, let's put it this way, James. As you know better than most, it's uh. not the first time I've made a tit out of myself in public and probably won't be the last time. I'm Graham Wilcos, here to tell you that the Bradley Wiggins show from Eurosport is back for a brand new series. For 20 years I've just been called a hero and a legend, you know, and other things obviously, but only behind the back. <laughs> we'll bring you stage-by-stage analysis of the Giro d'Italia, the World Championships, La Vuelta, and of course, the Tour de France. Oh, he's, he's got, got him! Oh. 
Each week, Sir Brad and our panel of cycling experts will be taking a deep dive into the world of two wheels and lycra. Brailsford could put his hand down a toilet and pull chocolate out. The Bradley Wiggins Show from Eurosport is your essential guide to the greatest events in cycling. Subscribe now on Audio Boom, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Hmm, Bradley Wiggins Show. Sounds like all you need for some hot Giro d'Italia action. All right, time now to get some end-of-season verdicts around the continent. We're joined by James Horncastle. Hello, James. Hi, sorry, were you, were you busy? There's a lot of stuff going on, James. All right, nice. Well, before we get on to the stuff that was happening in Italy, mm. let's just uh, check in on Spain, where Valencia beat Barcelona in the Copa del Rey. Uh, oh, and Ramos wants to go to China, is that right? But Florentino Perez won't let him go, apparently. He wanted to leave on a three. Oh, OK. In Germany, Rafa... Everyone's really excited about Union Berlin, particularly Union Berlin. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a wonderful story. They they won the relegation playoff against Stuttgart on on the away goal, nil nil at home after a two two draw um, in Swabia. It is a bit of a fairy tale story because they are a team that uh, were not compliant enough politically at the time of the GDR to be really winning lots of stuff. They did win the Ot Pokal and. Uh, had a couple of decent seasons, but um, BFC Dynamo Berlin, the Stasi outfit, uh, would always be treated preferentially. And they became um, a sort of a rallying point for people who were a little bit different in the GDR, almost like you know dissidents and people who try to f- kind of carve out a niche where they can do different stuff. And uh, they kept that kind of alternative, um, very family, very community-based approach throughout the last few decades. It got, it went to the point, it came as far as um, fans helping to paint the stadium, helping to build um, seats and stuff when, when, stadiums were, when the stadium was being extended. Uh, there are often communal events taking place there. And the fact that they have gone up uh, with very few points, very few goals, and very little football, um, has been <laughs> has been an amazing, absolutely amazing story, and everyone can't wait for them to, you know, to take on Hertha and the derby next year, and to right. be in the Bundesliga as one of the the most quirkiest and interesting clubs. They have the a lot of supporters. Ever seen. I mean, they're huge uh, crowds at these celebrations, no? Well, it looked huge because they stormed the pitch, but the stadium right. only holds twenty two thousand people. Oh, okay, well, do they have any chance in the Bundesliga? It's difficult. I think they scored something like 17 goals from, from dead ball situations. <laughs> um, if they can translate that into uh, Bundesliga 1, then maybe they have a chance. But, right. you know, they, they've relied on being defensively very sound under Urs Fischer and then taking, taking their one or two chances that they did create. They'll be up against it. But it'll certainly be the most interesting story right. just to follow their adventures. Another of those year. heartwarming clubs that the Bundesliga specialises in, really. Uh, James, we'll be coming to you very shortly. A quick word about France. Andrew Villas-Boas is back. He's just taken over at Marseille. And Matt, mm. is Arsene Wenger heading to Japan? I've no idea why you might know this more than anybody else. But, do, but of course you do Japanese football, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, apparently he's been offered the job at uh, Vissel Kobe. Oh, yeah. So this is the, the team who are owned by um, Rakuten, the, the tech giant who sponsor Barcelona and they've brought in um, David Villa and Andres Iniesta and Sergio Samper 
uh, already. Podolski's there too. Um, Wenger obviously used to manage Nagoya Grampus 8 uh, before he came to Arsenal. Uh, this is because Kobe have had a really, really terrible start to the season. They beat Shonan Belmare at the weekend, but they'd lost nine in a row prior to that. So right. they're going to be looking for a new manager. And then um, Fernando Torres, his mate Luis Carreras, who was a teammate of his at Atletico, recently been sacked. Torres is on the bench and he's still only scored four goals since uh, he joined. The most recent of those was in November. Wow. Mm. And Wenger has said that he will soon be back in the world of football in some way, shape or form. Yeah, it's a big money offer apparently, but I don't know. I think it'd be slightly surprising if he didn't take a job somewhere in Europe, maybe not as manager. Okay. Now, to the pod's very own Rob Green turning up late, grabbing a slice of the glory, James Horn. We're not like four goalkeepers around here now. (laughs) (laughs) Full kick goalkeepers. Safe hands all. (laughs) Uh, Big final weekend in Italy, Mm -hmm. uh, in which... We knew the top two, but we discovered who was three and four, Atalanta and Inter, earning their Champions League places. Lots of other things to talk about, not least the managerial moves. Where do you want to begin? Well, I think the end of the season is a bit of a bloodbath, isn't it? Because if you look at the number of managers, number of clubs changing managers, um, I think it's almost unprecedented, particularly with the big clubs. Roma still looking for a manager because Claudio Ranieri's gone. All of their kind of the guys that they were looking at contacted and offered either turned down or decided to stay um, in Gasparini and Marcelo Bielsa's um, case. Um, you look at Inter, I expect we'll have a press conference announcing Antonio Conte tomorrow. Um, and Juventus, um, I would say that Andrea Agnelli flying all the way to Baku and then not watching the game uh, would be a fairly strong indication of where their intentions lie. Um, so... Yeah, it's been uh, it's it's going to be pretty fascinating. We've obviously got a vacancy at Milan as well with Rino Gattuso um, deciding that his vision for what the club need next year does not align with that of Ivan Gazidis and very much the same. Um, you know, Leonardo resigning as well, so another revolution at Milan. So it's it's going to be, I think, a very active summer in Italy. How likely is it that he's going to go to Juve, Sari? Uh, I think it's very likely. Um, I think I don't think I think I don't think Chelsea would stand in the way of him going. Um, and I think uh, we'll see an agreement reached for compensation. Um, I would be very surprised if if it was someone else at this point in time. Okay. There's there's there's, there's been there's been still uh, and Sarri's comments on Sky Italia last night I think were quite telling, where he was asked about um, Napoli fans basically leaving banners outside of his house in Tuscany saying please don't betray us. And he said, I would never betray Napoli fans, but, you know, having a passion for a team is one thing. Being a professional is another entirely. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's still there's still a, a lot of speculation that this is all a bit of a smokescreen because the real target is Mauricio Pochettino. Um, but I would still be quite confident that it's going to be Mauricio Sarri. Who, who are Chelsea going to get if Sarri does one? Um, probably Frank Lampard, I would assume. Maybe really? Allegri would be an, out, an outside choice. Um, right. I just w- wonder how popular an appointment with Juventus supporters would Sarri be because of the, the, the Napoli stuff? Well, I think it's it's not too dissimilar to what happened when they appointed Massimiliano Allegri in that um, they essentially went for the best of the rest, the guy who pushed them closest. And um, that is what happened with... Allegri's Milan when Conte's Juve over, overtook them and won the title that year. Obviously, we saw Sally do that last year with Napoli. Um, I think it's more kind of style and fit. It's it feels very different to what Juventus have done 
um, not only on Danielli, but also before, historically. I think it'd probably be the most left-field appointments, even though Sarri's become a, a world-famous manager since they probably appointed Gigi Mafredi in terms of... Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Can you do a, Have you done a Golazzo about Mafredi? No, we haven't. No, not yet. Because that sounds really intriguing to me, because Juventus are the last club in Europe I expect to appoint a philosopher as manager. Right. Yeah. And I keep on hearing about this Mafredi, but I'd like to hear more. Gigi Mafredi, His... champagne uh, football. Golazzo, when is it back? Asked T. <laughs> Matthews. So I think next week we'll talk about that later. I want, would he take Jorginho with him to Juve and uh, and Ross Barkley to substitute him with? <laughs> um, I think they already look at it and think in the midfield they've got Miralem Pjanic who can do Jorginho's He's job. He's world class. He's world class as I've been telling Rafa <laughs> for years. Um, but again it kind of depends on on what Pjanic's future um, is because I don't think that's certain although the, the, the intermediary doing Let's say the intermediary who brought Sarri to Chelsea is the same one who represents Miralem Pjanic. So. I see. All right, but you mentioned Conte looks nailed on to take over at Inter. Yeah, it looks like done. Lukaku's joining him there as well. Uh, there will be somebody new at Milan with Gattuso renouncing. Is it five and a half million? Five net? and a half million net. It's extraordinary yeah. gesture. That is it. Is it that as simple as it's being reported, or is there some something? Uh, is there complexity behind? No, that, that is it is simply. He's just walked Milo away. Gattuso being Milan through and through um, and wanted to make that gesture because, again, for another summer, we are going to have, particularly over the next week, next 10 days, this discussion about Milan, financial fair play, will right. they be allowed into UEFA competitions next year? Do they even want to be in the Europa League next year? Because um, we saw l- last season that they, they managed to get reinstated. I think um, it'll be very interesting to see what um, tactic they take when they... Uh, when they go to Neon and speak to UEFA, mm. um, but um, no, I think it's a it's a wonderful uh, wonderful gesture from uh, from Big Reno um, to leave that much money on the table. Really, question here from Anthony Borg: With Juve, Inter, and Milan all getting new managers, which team will most likely reach their goals next season? Michael, what do you feel about Lukaku at, uh, at Inter, where Conte apparently has said that job one is getting uh, Mauro Icardi out the door? Yeah, I guess a similar kind of player in terms of. He's a goal scorer. He's often criticised for his link play, which I think is something Icardi doesn't excel at. But I think Lukaku's still got room to improve and I've actually been impressed by him when they've played him on the right for Manchester United this season. He's come in, he's showed a little bit more to his game. I still think he's a really good player, Lukaku. I think a little bit like Pogba, he's gone into a side or a club that is in turmoil beyond their influence and has suffered a bit, but I can imagine him being a very successful in Italy. Yeah, I mean, I was at the... I was at De Rossi's final game on Sunday at the mm-hmm. Olympico and Edin Dzeko came off and was whistled um, with the assumption that he will be going to Inter um, as well. I don't think one precludes the other. Um, I think um, Dzeko will go at quite a low rate, big wages because of his age. But Lukaku, there's definitely been contact there. He's done his new representation because he's left Mina Raiola, has been has had a, quite a big media strategy in, in Italy over the last six to eight weeks where he's done sit-down interviews with Sky Italian. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's, she's, the, she's the agent you want if you want to get out of Inter okay, right. rather than get in. So it could be quite interesting to see if both of those players end up going because um, I think Perisic will probably follow Icardi out. That does seem they'll be moving towards a two-striker system, classic Conte 3-5-2, blah, nice. blah, blah. So, yeah. With all these managerial um, opportunities, why haven't we seen Jose come back to Serie A? Well, I think A because he wants a team that can win, and the only team that can win in Italy is 
is Juventus. Um, and if you listen to Massimiliano Allegri in his final <laughs> press conference, he said, I think I'm leaving my successor a very good inheritance in that he's probably got a 90 to 100% chance of winning the league title. Wow. Um, so I, putting a little bit of pressure, I think, on uh, on whoever replaces him. But And then outside of that, if you look at the others, um, Napoli have obviously got a manager. Milan, I think it's hard for Jose to go there. Inter, obviously, I think feel that they're one and done with Mourinho that it's he's maybe not the manager he was when when he won the treble there in 2010 they're not the club that they, they were no, when he was absolutely so the administration's kind of... completely changed so and then you've got Roma who I, I wouldn't think would be able to stump up the kind of money that Jose Mourinho would be looking for and I think in terms of he, what he was looking for as well he would think can I win anything with this team it's probably going to be very difficult yeah. a couple of questions from that one so who are Milan looking at yeah it's quite interesting actually so um, there are a lot of uh, coaches casting for you know, pretty much the same job. So you've got Simone Inzaghi, who will meet Lazio today to discuss his future. Um, he's obviously one of the few, if only, people to have won something in Italy whilst Juventus have been cleaning up for everything over the last eight years. Um, Marco Giampaolo as well, the Sampdoria manager who's expected to leave, um, plays very good football. And then there's the hot name, which everyone likes, is the young manager, very progressive has similar ideas to Sadi, which is Dizerbi. Whether it feels it feels a bit too soon for Dizerbi to be going to uh, to Milan, but um, he's someone who I think is very exciting. Meantime, you were at the Stadio Olimpico at the weekend for a, a day of goodbyes, uh, a final day victory to see uh, Daniele De Rossi off after sixteen seasons, what? eighteen years, eighteen years in the first team. <laughs> really emotional scenes, not just for him, but also when. They held up that, that banner saying, uh, you know, when when we when your club called, you said presente. Now receive the homage of your your, your, your gente, people. Yeah, your that, people. Is, yeah. that was beautiful. So, given that they haven't been able to get any of these other people, is there any chance they might ask uh, Ding Dong Claudio to stay on? Look, I mean, he still wants to coach, and he doesn't yeah. want a national team, I don't think. Um, but I think it's been quite interesting over the last few weeks, certainly since the De Rossi announcement. Um, that he has used the knowledge that he's not going to be around anymore to be quite critical about the club, really, from right. within um, and say this isn't how you should be running the club. You should be keeping these guys around. I think there's going to be a revolution at Roma. All right. Well, uh, as a lot of listeners have been pointing out, we need to do an end-of-season Galazzo. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to try and sort one of those out next week. Yeah. We can get Gabrielli in. Get Gabrielli in and talk about Gigi Mafredi. Gigi Mafredi on uh, WhatsApp. His uh, his uh, status is in a team meeting. Right. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Which, given he's been unemployed for a long time right. as, as a manager, is quite surprising. I would say. You know. Yeah. That's the most shameless boast about having someone's phone number I've ever heard. <laughs> James has been reaching out to yeah. you, my Freddie. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, also, uh, if you're a fan of that kind of thing, be aware that you've, you've spoken again to the director of the excellent Maradona uh, oh, yeah. film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, did uh, that earlier in the week with Asif Kapadi because Ben and I went to see it, uh, and it's, it's magnificent. Some of the... Right. Uh, some of the archive... Well, not even the archive. It's like home video f- footage that they get is brilliant, and... It, um, I'm not going to spoil anything because everyone knows what happens to Maradona, but the opening sequence is brilliant. It's like a car chase. You're in the car that is taking Diego Maradona to the Stadio San Paolo um, for his his unveiling, um, and yeah, it's it's brilliant. Brilliant. 
Excellent. That's coming out on the 14th of June and your interview will be out at the same time, more or less. Very good. OK, thanks, James, for that. Uh, well, in a second or two, we'll have a, a word about the big, big summer of sport that's coming up. But first, uh, let's just get the odds on Champions League final and that kind of thing. Producer Ben in conversation with Paddy Power. Thank you very much, Jimbo. Lee Price from Paddy Power is on the line. It's been a while, Lee. Nice to talk to you again. And let's start, please, with last night's Europa League final. Uh, Chelsea were the winners, but is that enough to convince Chelsea or indeed Maurizio Sarri to stay together at Stamford Bridge next season? Well, he looked delighted after the Europa League final, quite rightly. He even acknowledged Gary Cahill, which apparently hasn't happened all season long. So maybe he is happy at Chelsea, but our traders don't buy it. He's odds on not to be the manager at the start of next season, Sarri. And he's odds on for the Juve job too. It's two to five if he goes there. As for his replacement, yeah, you're right. Frank Lampard, the only name in the frame. He's one to four to start next season at Stamford Bridge. That's a crazy short price. All right, let's turn our attention to Saturday night and the big one. It's the Champions League final. Liverpool versus Tottenham Hotspur. Give us some numbers here, please. <laughs> Finally, it's upon us after a three-week build-up. Liverpool, the big favourites for the big one. They're odds-on to win inside 90 minutes. They've been so well-backed over the last couple of weeks. Tottenham is 6-4 to four to lift the cup by any method. Speaking of other methods, we got penalties last time two English teams met in the Champions League final. And it's 5-1 to one that happens again this weekend, which could be juicy. As for goal scorers, Mo Salah is the shortest price player to score, so therefore most likely he's 13-10. to 10. Harry Kane isn't far behind him, though. Either we don't know how fit he is. He's 17 to 10 to notch. And looking ahead to this time next year, Lee, uh, the Champions League final is at the Ataturk Stadium. So a bit of narrative there for Liverpool. Uh, what are the odds, please, on them making it three finals in a row? And give us some odds on Pochettino as well. Is he going to be around at Spurs next season? <laughs> Interesting. Whatever happens on Saturday night, Liverpool will be amongst the favourites for next season's Champions League, of course. They'll be 7 to 1, uh, which put them right at the front of the pack. As for Poch, it's exactly half that price, so therefore twice as likely that he won't be top the manager at the start of next season, 7-2. to two. But we're not sure where he might go. Sarri, as I mentioned, is odds-on to be the next Juve boss. Jose Mourinho is odds-on for Bayern Munich, believe it or not. And Max Allegri is odds-on for PSG, so maybe he will disappear into the sunset. You can find out these odds and more at paddypad.com. All prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's 18-plus only. BeGambleAware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Busy summer of sport, Matt Davis-Adams. Sure is. I'm not sure if you're working on any of it, but the good news is you can keep across it, whatever you're up to, with your friends here at The Totally Show. Because not only are we doing, as I'll explain a little bit later on, two shows a week, but also we're doing shows at the end of every day of the Nations League and through the offside rule, our friends, the Women's World Cup as well. Now, the only place you'll be able to hear the Totally Nations League show and the offside rule on the Women's World Cup will be on Spotify. But it's completely free and you don't need a premium subscription or you don't have to sit through loads of ads either. So that's brilliant news. Sign up now. That's the Totally Nations League show and the offside rule on the Women's World Cup. Brilliant. Michael, of all the different competitions, you've got Nations League, the yep. Women's World Cup, Copper America, the Under-21s, the Gold Cup and the Africa Cup of Nations. And they're all happening more or less at the same time. Yeah, there's loads going on. Uh, back in the day, on a, in an odds-numbered year, you'd kind of just be 
bereft of any football news and now I don't think there'll be any break whatsoever but mm. some good competitions yeah certainly are you can watch Women's World Cup on the. this is in if you're in the UK so that's on the BBC and uh, let's have a look Copper America that's on Premier Sports mm. nice Gold Cup that's on Free Sports the Under 21s that's on Sky Sports Germany the reigning champions of that Rafa Looking forward to seeing how they do there. The Africa Cup of Nations is on Eurosport, I think. They switched that to Egypt cause, because Cameroon. I'm not sure what Cameroon yeah. didn't do. I might go to a couple of games of that, actually. Of the Africa Cup of yeah, Nations? Yeah. You might go to Egypt and check out a couple of games. I've never seen a game in Africa, so it's, uh, yeah, okay. one to Hell tick of off thing. the list. So that's a lovely idea. And the Copper America is, I think I said, it's on Premier Sports. And that's, that's getting underway on the 14th of June until the 7th of July. Are you working on that, Matt? Not that I'm aware of. All right. Matt's taking a break from football. Yeah. (laughs) 12 teams, three groups, all taking place in Brazil with Japan and Qatar joining in. Mm -mm. Oh, yeah, maybe I will if Japan are in it then. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Anyway, you might be taking a break, but the exciting news is that the Totally Football Show is not. We're going to be doing two shows a week through the summer. Yes. One on a Thursday, which I think is provisionally titled All About the Cox. Michael? Yeah, I haven't heard that working title. Okay. <laughs> Not definitive. But what's the subject it's of the show? Isn't it Big Cox? It might be Big Cox. Rafa will be, Go- Rafa will be Google searching. <laughs> <laughs> so, but no, no, but in all seriousness. So as a bit of a tie-in with the book that comes out today, if I didn't mention that earlier. Zonal marking. Um, we, we're looking at some classic uh, oh. European sides over the last 25, 30 Brilliant. years. Lots of great guests, including James, including Rafa, including Julian Laurent, Tom Williams, uh, Alvaro is coming to talk about Spain. No, James, not you. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think that's... So each week you'll be taking a classic side, say the Cruyff Ajax or or the the Pep. All from the modern era. So James is is talking about Juve in the 90s, Rafa's talking about Bayern's uh, treble campaign, etc., etc. But, uh, yeah, they're really fun to record, so looking forward to hearing them. I'm sure they'll be equally fun, if not more, to listen to. Anyway, that's on a Thursday, listener. And then on the Monday, Rafa... We'll be doing a regular show in which we'll be running up all the all the events and all those incredible number of competitions and uh, transfers and all that other kind of thing. Rafa, what are you most looking forward to this summer? Uh, Women's World Cup, actually. Brilliant. OK. And the Champions League final? Yes. Yeah, OK. That's Before this Saturday. That, yes. Listeners, we'll be back on Monday morning. First thing, actually. Mm. We'll be here with our look back at Saturday's big clash. Why are you raising your eyebrows like that? Mike. What do you mean first thing? Is it earlier well, than usual? Yeah, well, no, in the sense we're doing it on Sunday night. Are you? Yeah. Okay. Because model railways. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm looking forward oh. to this summer. Yeah, model railways. Season That's two? Season, yeah. season two. Back and bigger than it was before. Choo-choo. Choo-choo. <laughs> Choo-choo on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, brilliant and, and other such stuff uh, yeah, anyway so Sunday night we're all getting together to discuss what we thought of Liverpool Spurs Matt and that'll be out Monday morning and uh, don't forget to sign up for the Totally Notions, Nations League show <laughs> <laughs> the Notions League it'll be nostalgia against optimism <laughs> on Spotify and the preview show actually is going to be dropping Friday afternoon and it's an absolute doozy, I can tell you that. Also, if you want to catch up on what, what happened at the uh, International Ice Hockey Federation World Championship, which just took place in Bratislava 
then uh, listen to our Totally Ice Hockey show because it, it was amazing. The finale in particular, so emotional, Matt. Mm, sounds it. Uh, good. So that's it anyway for today. Many thanks to James Horncastle, Raphael Honigstein, Matt Davis-Adams, and, of course, Michael Cox and Priest Ben and you, listener. Uh, join us for our Nations League preview on Friday, and then we'll see you on Monday morning. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. And don't forget to check out our other football podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Supporting your team can be a beautiful thing, but then come the injuries, the goal droughts, and the downright disastrous defeats. That's a little bit like life, really. And here at the Totally Football Show, we believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the good days and the bad. And that's why we're continuing to work with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. On average, 12 men take their own life every day in the UK. So that's your starting 11 and your manager every single day. And part of the problem is that many of us still feel uncomfortable talking about mental health and suicide, and this can often stop men from opening up and getting support when they need it the most. So if you're worried that someone close to you is having a tough time, check in with them and let them know that Calm is there. Every day from 5pm till midnight, Calm provide a free, confidential and anonymous helpline and web chat for any man who needs support. Visit thecalmzone.net to find out more about Calm.